0: And welcome to this episode of the Glass Frog Podcast. I am your co host, Jen Puma. And I am your other co host, Rebecca Cassiano.
1: So today we are going to do something different and talk about a project that Jen and I have been working on for a couple of years now, along with our former colleague, Pratiksha. The project was actually brought to us by uh, someone who was, at the time, a program officer at the Overdeck Family Foundation named Sarah Johnson. And Sarah's great, by the way. She's no longer at the foundation, but she was extremely pleasant to work with and smart and Mm -hmm. uh, just affable, everything you'd want in a, uh, a work colleague. So she had started to notice some relationships between the various grantees they were funding as part of their exceptional educators portfolio at Overdeck and specifically she would noted that residency programs which aim to train future teachers could have direct benefits for students while certain other types of programs that provide direct services to students may also have benefits for teacher prep So as an example of the latter type of organization, programs that place young adults or recent college graduates into schools to provide supplemental services like tutoring or homework help or after-school help could also in turn be offering teacher prep services to those young people who are tutoring and giving homework help, either formally or informally, just by giving them an opportunity to work in schools and work alongside teachers. So this was a really interesting insight and one that kind of works to expand the value proposition for these types of programs the key insight being that programs that work in the education space don't exist in a vacuum and as a result they can have effects that extend beyond their more immediate mission statements
0: Mm -hmm. you know we mentioned how great sarah was and just I'm going to like expand on that a little bit more because it's it just was really great of Sarah and the Overdeck Family Foundation to kind of bring this research question to the field basically because this question is something that hasn't been explored before and it's one quite honestly that like the programs that are like ensconced in doing this work are probably not in a position to explore themselves right so like they're really busy the programs just being accountable for their mission demonstrating their efficacy And it's, like, really unlikely, honestly, that they're going to have the resources to devote to, like, looking at their programs in an interesting way. But philanthropists are in this position to ask these really interesting questions. And so, you know, I think Sarah and, and Overdeck was, like, doing exactly what philanthropy should be doing because like, it's just really hard for programs that even if they wanted to study this or if they had this idea in their head, like, hey, we're kind of seeing this um, as we're boots on the ground. It's just, it's a really hard thing for these programs to be able to study themselves. So, you know, also I'll mention while I'm talking about this, that our research project then was not about studying the efficacy of these programs for their primary purpose, you know, just to hit home what we're studying is the auxiliary benefit of these, or I should say ancillary benefit of these programs. So we'll, we'll remind folks that along the way, that we're, we're not speaking to the efficacy directly of these programs. And I think that's important if if you're one of these programs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And just in terms of thinking about kind of that why it matters question, early on in the project I remember Sarah said something that kind of stuck with me and then it was kind of echoed throughout the project by various stakeholders that we encountered along the way and and that's that you know school districts often face attention between funding programs that provide direct services to students versus funding programs that provide teacher prep. And so they're kind of in this really like real situation of having to decide what they're going to fund and trying to kind of collect information that will inform that decision. So one person that we talked to, she's the Jennifer Green, the co-founder of Urban Teachers. She had said to us that the funding for teacher prep programs, like residency programs, that actually comes from a different line item in the school budget than funding for direct service programs. So that would come from the human capital line of a school budget, whereas funding for direct service programs would come from Title I money. So schools can't fund these programs using these different line items. So that's part of their perceived tension that school districts are facing. So the study alone isn't going to absolve that tension, but it's hopefully a step in the direction of helping programs and eventually school districts realize that maybe there isn't a huge tension between these two types of programs after all.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Rebecca, because that was another piece of this project that like just made it feel, I don't know, like very meaningful to work on. And talking a little bit about about the project and the complexity of the project, there was a lot there was a lot to unpack for us to be able to even figure out how we were going to be able to answer these questions. And so like a broken record, I'll say Overdeck was great. They allowed us to have like a planning grant that gave us some runway to do pre-work where we could figure out what programs can be involved and what our research design might be. And basically just kind of confirm like yeah, we could get the data we need to even explore this question. So this is, I think, important and we we don't want to bury this for other funders and other researchers. Like, if it's possible, you should set aside some part of your research budget for this kind of planning phase. I think it's like incredibly beneficial and it will make the budget more accurate for the actual execution of the research design and i think like as researchers i'll be transparent but like we would not have known to really ask for this we've learned the hard way um, (laughs) that that it could be really helpful to have this planning runway to do the work so if you're a researcher ask for it advocate for it. it it can only help you it can't hurt you and if you're a funder out there be a really awesome, responsible funder like Overdeck and say, yeah, we can set aside part of this budget for you to do some planning work and make sure that we we have clarity as we move into like the real substance of the research. So I think it's beneficial on, on both ends. So as we dig into the weeds on the actual findings, I didn't want that piece of the implementation to get lost. So just want to mention that up front. So yes. Rebecca, how are we going to tackle this? All right. So because the topic's a little
1: dense and there's kind of a lot to unpack, we're actually going to release the conversation as two episodes. So we'll have this episode, which is going to talk about the findings related to the residency programs and that research question. And then we're going to have a separate episode that talks about findings related to the auxiliary staffing programs. And... In those episodes, we're going to describe typical residency programs and auxiliary staffing programs to give a little bit more flavor about what we're talking about when we use those terms. We'll describe our research questions and why we think they are plausible uh, hypotheses. We'll offer some key takeaways or headlines for each of our main research questions. We'll talk a bit about the implications of the study, the findings, the why it matters question. We'll because we are masochists, talk a bit about the limitations of our work.
0: (laughs) Good researchers, Rebecca. Mm -hmm.
1: That's right. And lastly, we'll talk about the implications of the research, both for programs, so residency programs and also auxiliary staffing programs, and for future researchers who are interested in this question. So, Jen, do we have a
0: sponsor? Oh, well, it's funny you should mention that, Rebecca. Loyal listeners of the Glass Frog podcast know that we have an unwitting sponsor for our episodes but for this two-part series um we have no unwitting sponsor because this work was very very wittingly sponsored by the overdeck family foundation so we, we didn't want to steal their thunder they they are our witting sponsor for the next two episodes so uh thank you for reminding me to mention them and um we got a lot to dig into so I don't know. What do you say? Let's get to it. Let's do it.
1: For a variety of reasons, Jen and I are recording this on a Sunday morning. It is a brisk fall day in early October. And I have my pumpkin cold brew, which is very seasonal. My daughter and I like to drink it in the fall. And Jen has her daily iced coffee Mm -hmm. and it's 10, 19, Mm -hmm. exact. So that means Jen's taken about three sips Mm -hmm. of the iced coffee that she's had for well over an hour. Yep. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she will continue to nurse that until about, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, 435. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's about right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she may add ice to it. No, never,
0: it? never adding ice, but topping it off with more oat milk.
1: Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's what I Cold do. oat milk
0: to exactly. make it. Got it. Yeah, that's my refresh. Around like two o'clock? Let's see, kind of see, see where I'm at, you know, pay, playing it fast and loose. But, uh, you know, there's there's going to be some refreshing happening throughout the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I hope our listeners are... Curling up with a with a nice beverage, or maybe you're out walking as you're listening to this podcast, or you're commuting, and so in which or case, or maybe
1: you're sitting in front of a cozy fire. I, <laughs> I love the idea of our listeners having all of Netflix available to them,
0: I'm <laughs> I'm still deciding to listen to this. <laughs> yep, yeah. that well, would be hardcore. Uh, that would be. That would be. So yeah, everybody's cozied up and we're, we're ready to have this conversation about half of the overdeck work that we did.
1: Yeah, and I promised Jen that I would not make it too wonky. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna try to be light on a lot of the methodological details because mm-hmm. honestly, we want you to listen to this and we don't want you to fall asleep. We want you to stay awake If you have questions, we're going to be linking to the report on our website. And also, you know what would be grand? Mm -hmm. If a listener just reached out and said, I want to know more about X, Y, or Z. And I I would be thrilled to provide more information. Yeah, we might be scant with details here, but please feel free to reach out.
0: Yeah, it's it's not because the details don't exist. We're just trying to make this... uh palatable palatable yes Mm -hmm. exactly
1: like my cold brew
0: oh full circle love it
1: (laughs) yes okay so i'll say quickly what our main research question was so as we talked about briefly in the introduction we were interested in studying the value of hosting a resident in a classroom for the students and so the specific research question is, what is the added value of hosting residency personnel in the classroom as measured by improved teacher effectiveness during the year of the residency?
0: So, uh, Beck, before we like get further into this conversation, I think we probably, just to not make any assumptions, let's define first like what a residency program is. That, that might be clear, but just in case it's not. A residency program is a program that basically teachers in training through rigorous curriculum, as well as a practicum of them being in the classroom, working with a what we call a teacher of record. So the resident is a kind of a teacher in training, prospective teacher. They're paired with someone who has been teaching for at least a couple of years. And that person is the teacher of record. And this, the teacher of record is helping to give the resident a kind of training ground for them to be able to practice teaching. And they're giving them feedback on their teaching practice. And I'm going to kind of, further, I'm going to offer up a few more terms that are really important when we talk about the residency model. So there are kind of different approaches to residency programs that different nonprofits might take, sort of like different hypotheses for what makes a really good teacher on the other side of this residency program that they complete. One hypothesis is that you pair a resident with any teacher who is willing to just host the resident in their classroom. So irrespective of maybe the other attributes of the teacher, like the the quality of that host teacher, the most important thing is a willingness for them to be willing to host a resident. And then what the residency program does, what the nonprofit does, is they kind of fill in the gaps around providing very like quality training to the residents. So the host teacher, what they're providing is like the physical space for the most part. That's like their biggest obligation. Another model for residency programs, a different approach is to pair a resident with a teacher that's going to serve as more of a, of a mentor to them, to that resident. So like very actively coach them, build a relationship with them. And Foster the development of that resident. And so when programs follow this model, they're looking for some very specific attributes in the host teacher. And they call this the to kind of make this distinction because both teachers are are hosting a resident, right? What the way we're going to refer to it is that there's the mentor teacher model and there's just the regular host teacher model. So the mentor teacher model is where that teacher of record is really playing a much larger role in shaping the development of the resident. And so the programs are selecting those teachers differently because it's not just about a willingness to have another adult in your classroom, but you really need to be willing to put in the time and kind of have a certain caliber of teacher that's gonna do a really good job being a, a mentor. I feel like I've said a lot. Rebecca, would you add anything to that or clarify anything for our listeners? Yeah, maybe the only clarification
1: I would add is with the mentor model. So Mm -hmm. they are selecting more experienced teachers and teachers who uh, kind of have a history of being high-quality teachers. The other thing they're doing, just to be clear, is they're actually giving a lot of training oh, to those mentor teachers, and thank so thank
0: you for not mentioning so that. much that they're like, "Oh,
1: you're a good teacher." Like, please mentor our residents. They're giving a lot of assistance to the mentors in mm-hmm. how to work with a resident, how to co-teach with a resident, how to co-plan. You know, top and down. So there's a lot of professional development, mm-hmm. not just for the resident, but for the mentor, and so. This is a model that's espoused by an organization that we got to know pretty well during the project called the National Center for Teacher Residencies, NCTR. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to learn more about that specific model, you can go to the NCTR website. But yeah, a big part of it is kind of the hands-on training they're giving to the mentors during the residency period.
0: Thank you for reminding me of that because I had that in my head to mention and uh, and then I got So uh, yeah, I lost my train of thought. So thank you. This is why we're tag teaming. Mm -hmm. Also, it's great that you mentioned NCTR. We definitely learned a lot from them during this project. You can definitely check out their website and they will talk all about their mentor teacher model. And they have basically like other residency programs that they start all over the country that kind of follow this model. So that might be interesting for folks who want to learn more about that. Another key sidebar is that while Rebecca mentioned NCTR, we we actually aren't going to talk about the, by name, we're not going to mention the programs that were used in this analysis. In the report, we use pseudonyms just out of respect for the different programs, but here, I think it would be like really awkward if we were (laughs) mentioning the pseudonyms. And and then maybe if you like lose track that these are pseudonyms and not real organizations, and you're like trying to find these pseudonyms online, I think it would just get really confusing. So we're going to keep it again, like pretty simplistic as we talk about this. So the most important thing probably to like, if you're going to keep anything in your head is really just about the fact that there's a host teacher model and a mentor teacher model. And we'll talk about this in a little bit that there's going to be two programs that follow the mentor teacher model and only one program that follows this host teacher model. So if you're curious about the programs themselves, mum's the word. We're not, we're, we're going to, out of respect for the programs, maintain their anonymity.
1: Yeah. So let's talk briefly about kind of why Overdeck thought that having a resident in the classroom could have an impact on student performance. So there was this observation among, so by Sarah Johnson, who, as we mentioned in the intro, was the person who brought the project to us, you know, that we see classrooms across the U.S. right now, many of them moving to this like two teacher model or a co-teaching model. And that can look a lot of different ways. But the observation was that Having a resident in the classroom in some ways could be analogous to having a a two-teacher classroom. I mean, you literally do have a two-teacher classroom, except one of the adults in the classroom is in training and the other is a more experienced teacher. So there are a few kind of mechanisms by which having that resident in the classroom could improve student learning. So the first is that, you know, if they're working together and co-planning together, the mentor and the resident could provide more opportunities for, you know, small group instruction, for differentiated learning. There's certainly more opportunities for relationship building. So there's, you know, if a student doesn't feel really connected to one of the adults in the classroom, maybe they'll form a connection with the other adult in the classroom and, and that could be really valuable just for their engagement in their learning. And you can also think about, on the flip side, there being a lot of value to the actual mentor in terms of, you know, I know when someone's when someone's watching me, I tend to do things differently. And so, um, you know, I, I, think having, you know, someone else in your classroom, even if they're not explicitly saying they're holding you accountable in some ways, you know, if, if you're a professional, you, you do feel a sense of accountability. And so you might invest more time in planning. You might invest more time in co-planning the act of kind of making your practice transparent to another person could have benefits, mm-hmm. um, for you as you reflect on what you're doing and why you're doing it and realize. Sometimes you, what you're doing makes no sense. <laughs> so there's just there could be a lot of benefits for the mentors in a way that improves their instruction, which in turn would have benefits for the students. And also say you know on the flip side, I think there is a risk too, and this is always kind of I think a concern that residency programs hear, that having a resident in the classroom actually could detract from student learning because the teacher, instead of being responsible for, you know, 20 to 30 kids, is now responsible for 20 to 30 kids and Mm -hmm. an adult. And they're distracted, and they're in turn not as effective as they otherwise would be. And so, you know, I think that's a critique or a concern that we heard Mm -hmm. along the way. And so, in, in many ways, we're testing the hypothesis that having a resident in the classroom could affect student learning. Our hypothesis is that it would have a, a positive effect, but there are reasons to believe that it could also have a negative effect. So yeah, Jan, would you add anything?
0: No, I like that background just because it kind of tees up like, why the heck would we spend all this time <laughs> studying not the primary purpose of these programs? Because remember, we're not looking at these programs to see if they're producing effective residents and that's their mission. We're looking at these programs to see if they are helping students. So, you know, I've always appreciated that kind of background. Is just like, why would we even spend our time on this? And so I also really like, you know, for folks out there, like, I just love that thinking around this that Sarah Johnson had like spearheaded to think of programs in a different way, you know, it's just kind of like turning it on its head instead of just like looking at, well, this is the mission. And of course, we, we have to prove the efficacy of our mission. Um, but it's a lot more fun and interesting if you can look at these ancillary benefits of your program. And as you had said in the intro, really add to your value statement. So that's why we were thinking we're really we could be adding to the value statement of these programs, either even if it's dispelling a myth, potentially that like, you know what, adding an extra person to the classroom, adding a resident is at least not detracting from student learning. Like just to be able to say that is like would be pretty great as part of this research. So these were kind of all the reasons why we were like, yep, this is worth our time looking at. And so we encourage other people to think creatively about their programs whatever they might be even if they're not education programs like these so maybe before we talk about what we found do you want to just scratch the surface a little bit Rebecca on the methods you know without you know in case people are operating heavy machinery you know we don't want them (laughs) getting put to sleep not that that would ever happen
1: Jen is hyper nervous that I am just going to bore you all to tears so, and, and there is a real risk not unfounded. So I'm going to just give like one sentence on what we did. We basically partnered with three residency programs that were working in three different districts across the U S um, some charter districts, some public school districts, and we so we collected data from them for as many years as they would give us data. We could talk later about some of the challenges there. Uh, and then we, you know, did a statistical analysis that kind of let us examine whether teachers' effectiveness in the year that they were hosting residents was greater or less than <laughs> the effectiveness of teachers not hosting residents after taking into account kind of their prior effectiveness. So that's kind of a wonky way to talk about this. I'm going to step back for a sec and just say the reason that we're focusing on teacher effectiveness. Is this the right time to talk about this, Jen? You think I should actually
0: now? I know where you're going. I I see you, and I know where mm-hmm. you're going with this, Rebecca. Could you actually back up first and just talk a little bit about the teacher effectiveness score, which yeah. we're going to say like TE, We might say TES's TES's a lot for folks that aren't seeing this written picture in your head, TES, teacher effectiveness or TESs. That's what we keep saying here. So tell people about that.
1: Okay. So there are a few ways to measure student learning. In an ideal world, you would have some direct measure of student learning from the students. And so Often, you know, researchers and evaluators rely on student test scores for this, even though they're imperfect, but you can kind of trace a student's learning over time by watching their test scores and maybe comparing them to some other group. For a couple of reasons, we did not have access to student test scores for all of the programs. In one program in particular, we were only able to obtain teacher value added scores. You know, the, the value-add scores, I'm sure everybody listening, if you've gotten this far, you probably know what a teacher value-add score is. Basically, like, as the name applies, how much value a teacher is adding to kind of student learning in a given year. I mean, it's basically how effective they are. And that can be based on a number of things. In some cases, it's almost primarily driven by student learning. And so they just look at student test scores and use that as a proxy of teacher effectiveness. In other cases, they're using student test scores and also taking into account principal observations, peer reports, uh, maybe some parent feedback, uh, maybe student feedback at some time. So it becomes like a kind of a composite measure of all of these different indicators of teacher effectiveness. So because we were only able to get teacher effectiveness scores for consistently across the three programs and we couldn't get the student performance data across all three programs, we use teacher effectiveness scores in our analysis And so what we're really looking at is whether having a resident in the program improves teacher effectiveness in the year or years that they host a resident in the classroom. You know, I think we we felt pretty comfortable in terms of thinking about this more broadly as a measure of student performance, because especially for, for one, but all three to some extent take into account student performance. And so I was gonna say in one case, it's almost exclusively that the teacher effectiveness score we have is almost exclusively a measure of student performance. In other cases, it's more of a composite measure. But so to be precise, we're measuring teacher effectiveness. You know, if people can push back on this, but we're also thinking of it more broadly as a as a proxy for student learning.
0: Yeah, thank you for breaking that down. And also, I don't think that you had said this, but it might be worth mentioning for folks in the analysis, we kind of have to take into account a bunch of other variables, like the number of years of experience a teacher has and the school characteristics, because every school is different. Can you just talk just a teensy bit about how you factor that into the regression that you do? Because folks might be wondering, how do you compare three programs in three different states, you know, like Mm -hmm. when there's all these other variables involved?
1: Yeah. So it's a good question. I'll just say quickly that we actually don't pool all of the data together. So we run Mm -hmm. the analysis separately by program because we were only, so the outcome variable, the teacher effectiveness score did the scale of it varied greatly across programs. And so, and also the data we were able to get for each program varied a little bit. And so we ended up just running them separately Mm -hmm. by program. So in most cases though we were able to get the teachers prior effectiveness scores so that we could have a proper baseline and then also years of teaching experience and then also school characteristics and so you know like the percentage of students who receive free and reduced price lunch percentage of students who are who have disabilities et cetera. and then you know the we just include a, a term or a variable in the model that indicates whether a teacher was a host teacher versus a non-host teacher uh, in other words, whether they were hosting a resident or not hosting a resident. And that's the variable we were really looking at to see if if it was associated with uh, their effectiveness.
0: And we had a comparison group as well, right? We had to do that in a kind of... I'm baiting you here because like, I'm like, let's not put them to sleep. And then I'm like, well, you got to talk about the school <laughs> characteristics. And I was like, you got to talk about the comparison group. So I'm, I'm like aiding and abetting your criminal mind and like talking about <laughs> the methods. But like, Yeah, I I think we got to like touch on, give a sentence or two on the comparison Mm -hmm. group.
1: I mean, it's just basically teachers who did not host a resident in the classroom. And so we identified teachers who never hosted a resident in the classroom, and and then we included them in our comparison group. Let me give a little caveat. If a teacher eventually hosted a resident, so for example, if Mm -hmm. we had data from 2015 to 2019, and- they hosted a resident in 2019, but not 2015 to 2018. We could include them in the comparison group for those years, mm-hmm. but they would then be in the treatment group for 2019. Got it. And we ran so- all of our models kind of separately by year. It was kind of, I mean, for a variety of reasons, we, we did it very simply. We did it by program and then by year. And then we kind mm-hmm. of looked across year and program to draw conclusions.
0: Mm-hmm. I hope that this is painting like a little bit of a picture for folks of the complexity that went into the planning to figure out how we could do all of this. And I'll mention too that the three programs that we did the analysis for, we didn't like Overdeck didn't hand those to us. Like we had to go out and find them. And they had some ideas about who we could talk to for sure to start. But, you know, in the intro, we talked a bit about having a planning grant. And so, the relatively brief summary that Rebecca just gave on the on the methods and the comparison group that probably came out of like, to be able to get to that point of knowing what our methods was, was like, was it over a year's worth of work, Rebecca? Right? Probably like...
1: Almost, I, I don't remember, to be honest, yeah, but it was like a lot of planning. It. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it a was a lot of and, planning. And like a lot of it was just administrative, you know, like it was hard, hard to yeah, get people yeah. on the phone and then you get them on the phone and then you got to track down what data could possibly be available. So a lot of it is just waiting on others to give you mm-hmm. information so that you can move forward, which I think is sometimes the biggest challenge of being a researcher or evaluator is like the lack of control you have <laughs> over, <Yeah>. over others.
0: <laughs> yep. And setting up the data sharing agreements with the programs. And then the programs have to, we also would have to set it up with the districts that they were working with because not these programs, they weren't necessarily the owners or they were not the owners of the teacher effectiveness scores. So there was all of these layers of administration that we went through to just be able to know, like, these are the programs that could be involved. This is the type of analysis we could do. Like the, okay, we're not going to get student test scores. We're going to get teacher effectiveness scores. And so all of that got winnowed down over the course of like a year's worth of, of planning just to be able to summarize that. So yeah, there's a, I don't know. It just, it's worth like with all of these conversations, we want to pull the curtain back, right. On like the, on the work and have transparency and so I think some of this minutiae is good from that perspective that, you know, it, it's just understanding that it's a big undertaking. What does it take to have it be successful? And like the roadblocks that you hit along the way, a lot of them are administrative. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Which
1: is, why, which is why I value Jen so much because she's like <laughs> so much better at that stuff than I am.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my role, guys, on, on this project <laughs> was all of the administrative work, but nobody gives a flying wahoo about that we're here to talk about the 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 meat (laughs) and potatoes so why don't we without further ado get to the takeaways you know we're burying the lead here like i know we we did all this
1: i know we should have maybe come out at the top with the
0: well no we want to keep our listeners on their on the edge (laughs) of their seats so the big reveal
1: the big reveal okay so what did we learn In two out of three of the programs that we partnered with for this project, we found that teachers who were hosting a resident in the classroom had significantly greater teacher effectiveness scores in the years they were hosting the resident. And that's compared to other teachers who were not hosting a resident while also controlling for prior teacher effectiveness scores. Now here's the real interesting part. And that's that the two programs for which we observed this positive significant effect were the mentor teacher programs. So those were the programs that were using this mentor model where uh, residency programs recruit the kind of most effective, most experienced teachers they can find, provide a lot of hands-on professional development to them on how to be mentors, how to support residents in the classroom. Uh, And then really kind of nurture that mentor-resident relationship over the course of the year. So those were the the two programs where we saw the positive effect. They were using that mentor model. The third program, the host-teacher program, we did not find a significant effect. We didn't, basically what we observed was that there was no difference between in teacher effectiveness scores for teachers when they were hosting versus not hosting a resident, which I think is also, you know, if I'm going to, if I was in PR, I would say that's also a positive finding in many ways, because I think a lot of people's assumption is that having a resident in the classroom is a distraction for the classroom teacher. And what we saw here is that not only does it not have a negative impact, in some cases, if, if done carefully, it can have a, a positive impact. And so, yeah, that was the primary takeaway of, of, and we did, we ran a few other specifications, but those were kind of the the primary findings.
0: Mm -hmm. And just so folks know, we didn't recruit these different types of mentor models, like in an effort to like intentionally pit them against each other. It like just so happened that as we were trying to recruit programs to participate, that we learned that they two of the three programs had one particular type of approach, and we really weren't anticipating that we would, I don't know, like uh, that this would kind of be a, an, an additional level of uh, nuance to the analysis that we were doing. And so it was really interesting when this finding cropped up in the research because, or in our analysis, because then it kind of made sense in a way like right like we were like well it would sort of make sense that like if you're providing a lot of hands-on support and professional development to a mentor teacher that like that might move the needle and make them a more effective teacher in the process and if you're not providing hands-on support like the host teacher model like you're just the only requirement is that you're just you're willing to host a resident and they're not getting any hands-on pd then it would make sense that perhaps they would not, it wouldn't have a negative effect or it wouldn't have a positive effect either. And so this like narrative started to like come out of the data that actually made sense that we, we had not anticipated going into it at all.
1: Yeah, it's always fun when your findings make sense. It doesn't yeah. <laughs> always happen. In fact, it often doesn't happen. And so when something kind of tracks with your understanding of a program and how it works and its theory of change, That's always exciting for a researcher.
0: Yeah. And remember, we're not studying the primary effectiveness of these programs. We're not studying whether they are producing effective residents. We're studying the effect on the student by way of the teacher of record, the impact of having the resident on the classroom. So just having a, which means that like, just because you use a host teacher model, it doesn't mean that you're less effective at producing high quality residents we want to make that really clear
1: yeah thank you for clarifying that because it is important that they might have figured out the ideal model for what they are aiming to do (laughs) which is train future residents or future teachers and the fact that it has kind of no effect on student learning maybe that's beside the point because they're kind of hitting a home run on their primary objective so yeah it's important to bring that up so there is this big question around, you know, why does it matter? What are the implications of this? I think we've talked about that a little bit. I think for residency programs, we mentioned and talked about a bit the pressure they feel from potential district partners or school partners to kind of not screw up what's happening in the classroom, not make it harder or more of a burden for the mentor or for the for the classroom teacher. And You know, I think that this information can be used to kind of put that concern to rest and help kind of alleviate any fears they have about, you know, introducing a resident into their school environment.
0: And in addition to kind of alleviating that concern, this kind of opens up this opportunity to dig into that, I call the, like the secret sauce of the mentor teacher and the resident. So what is it about that relationship that you can, you know, like there's opportunities to study, like what are the most critical parts of that relationship? Like if you have nothing else, like you should have these two or three or, or four elements, you could study what makes a good, mentor host teacher to begin with. So like, how do you wanna recruit those mentor teachers? And on the flip side, what kind of residents might you want to recruit? Like what are the characteristics of those residents and those mentors that together produce these really effective co-teaching kind of partnerships? I mean, th- th- those are just like th- like kind of three areas of study that come to mind off, uh, off the bat. NCTR, which Rebecca mentioned earlier, you know, since they are the National Center for Teacher Residencies, they're really taking this data in voraciously and they're kind of like running with it. And they collect a lot of data on their mentors and their residents. And so a lot of like descriptive statistics that kind of put them in a position to be able to start to explore some of these like other research questions. So that's like a whole other like opportunity, I think, for research coming out of these findings here.
1: Yeah. When we've started this project with Overdeck, Sarah was very clear that she wanted this to be kind of a jumping off point, like that we weren't going to be kind of definitively answering (laughs) these questions, but rather opening the door for researchers to kind of explore this. Um, And so I think, yeah, what you said, Jen, is perfect about there just being a ton of in addition to kind of taking our work and, and replicating it and kind of verifying it in, in other settings, there's this whole other layer of questions around underlying mechanisms and kind of what the key components of programs are that are driving these effects, you know, whether the they're durable, the effects. So there's just a mm-hmm. lot of research that can be done. And so I think it's really promising for mm-hmm. the residency field.
0: And we kind of did look into the <laughs> the durability of the effects. I love that word. Like the we tried to look that into that a little bit with our data but like I don't know, would you say Rebecca that like the sample sizes weren't there to like really explore that? Is that how you Well, I'll let you explain it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: we could explore this with two of the programs that we had mm-hmm. given kind of some of the the data issues. And what we found is that one of them there were a, Durable effects, um, and the other there there weren't. So what we found is that you know in the years after a teacher hosted a resident, when they were no longer hosting a resident, in one of the programs their effectiveness score stayed high, mm-hmm. um, and so that effect was kind of like sticky. In in the other case, they kind of went back down to pre-residency mm-hmm. levels. So I think that that's an area that could definitely be because yeah. you know it speaks to kind of the reasons we talked about at the outset for why Mm -hmm. hosting a resident could have an impact. It could be that it's an actual presence of a second adult in the classroom that's leading to improved teacher practice. And it could be that it's leading to improved actual like mentor teacher practice. And those things aren't mutually exclusive, Mm -hmm. but kind of teasing out the extent to which one or both of those pathways is responsible Mm -hmm. is if, if we had unlimited time and resources. Right. I would yeah. Love to pursue that.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I guess like point being lots of different avenues to kind of pursue jumping off from this research. I think we should, you know, to be proper about it, talk a little bit about the limitations of the research just so folks are aware. I feel like we we wouldn't be we, we wouldn't be good researchers if we weren't talking about the limitations. I feel like a Debbie sure. Downer because we're like limitations. Wah, wah. Like we, no, I, here, I, here's I, our great findings, but slow your roll. What are the limitations? So <laughs> I feel like you have to be fair.
1: Sure. I totally agree. So I- I think we've touched on a couple of them already. Um, yeah. So it's just kind of a reminder and we're putting them all in one place. So mm-hmm. one of them is the one we talked about around the teacher effectiveness scores that we weren't able to get this kind of like perfect measure of student achievement. And so we relied on the teacher value add scores. And I think that was fine. I, I don't know that's mm-hmm. a limitation as much as it's a consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for people looking <laughs> to replicate this, maybe if they can get the student performance data um then, then they should and and try to replicate it using that as an outcome.
0: Wait, I want to tell a little anecdote about when we were trying to get the data from one of the districts. And I mean, you'll, you'll tell this better than I will, but like one of the districts had some very clear opinions about whether they wanted to give us student data versus teacher effectiveness scores. And they... They sent us the message in a, I don't know, it was an indirect way, but it was not necessarily subliminal. <laughs> it was not a subliminal message no. that they were sending to us. So yeah, this particular
1: district, it wasn't that they wanted, like they had a preference over what outcome variable we use. It's that they didn't want to pull the student data. Yeah. It was like too heavy a lift for them, which I get. I mean, these districts, poor district research offices are always overwhelmed. So they did not want to pull the student data for us. And so they said they would give us the teacher effectiveness scores instead. And then they said, you know, if you want us to pull. I don't
0: even think they said it like we won't pull it. They just said. They said
1: they don't want to. Oh, they did. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They were pretty clear about it because it was I guess they they're kept in different systems. The teacher effectiveness scores mm -hmm. were kept, I think, in like the H.R. data set and the student effectiveness scores were kept in like or student uh, performance were kept in like another data set and. I don't understand what kind of system they have, but it was apparently much easier for them to pull from the human resources files. So yeah, they were pretty explicit about it, but we kept pushing for the student data. right? Cause
0: we had all of, we had our two other exactly. programs lined up with, exactly. with student data. And so then we get to this third program. They keep uh, nagging and then
1: they say, okay, we'll give you the student performance data, but we're gonna charge you 10 times the amount that we would charge for pulling these the teacher data and we're not going to give you any information about teacher experience i think it was like we're going to pull this one other variable that you need to run your analysis uh-huh. and we're going to charge you 10 times as much so you can have your student data right you're not going to be able to do your analysis and you're going to pay 10 times as much money for it so they basically <laughs> strong-armed us into yeah teacher effectiveness course. And I think we actually asked, we were like, are you really saying that you can't get us this other variable that we need, which was the teacher experience variable. And she was like, yes, we don't want to give you this data. Yeah. We're making you choose the option that we want. <laughs> and so we said, yeah. okay, we'll stop. We, you win. We yeah. lose. <laughs> we'll lose. we take the teacher
0: effectiveness. Like, course. Yeah. And, and then yeah, we had to go weird. back with the other two programs and then be yeah. like, okay, now we need teacher effectiveness scores. Yeah. Cause... We had
1: them for one, I think. Yeah, it was, it was a it was a headache. It was and the fact that we were using the teacher when you have the student performance, usually it's a test score, which you can then convert to like a standardized variable so that you can then pool together data from mm-hmm. different districts. We couldn't do that with the teacher right. effectiveness scores because there was in in one case, the variables that they gave us were. It was like a categorical variable, like a ordinal variable Mm that had a few different categories, like ranging, you know, one to five or something. But there's no way to like standardize it in a way that you could include it with the other districts Mm data set. So Mm -hmm. it just became unfeasible to like put it all together into one data set. So we ended up just running separate analyses, which was fine. It wouldn't have been ideally what we wanted to do. But again, I wouldn't call it a limitation as much as a consideration.
0: (laughs) This is research in the real world, right? Like it's just a, Mm -hmm. if somebody else were to do this analysis, which, you know, again, we'd be happy to talk to folks that wanted to replicate this analysis and share what we did methodologically. If you can get different programs that are willing to give you the student data, I mean, have at it. You know, you don't have to do it this way exact way but this is a little again behind the scenes like pulling back the curtain and why we did it the way we did it but it was uh we had this moment where we're like the da- the district is strong arming us by charging us 10 times more for this data because they don't want to give it to us they've been very explicit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, we said to Overdeck, you, you probably don't want to pay this price tag for this data, right? Like, we'll just go back and kind of do this in a different way. And they were like, yeah, just go back to it a different way. So, <laughs> okay. So one other, I think it would be a constraint that we, uh, I remember coming up, Rebecca, when we did this was around having access to prior years of data such that we, I'm saying these words, but I I clearly don't feel confident in them. Like we couldn't establish this like baseline trend from having access to prior years of data. Can you talk more about that?
1: Sure. So for individual teachers, we had access to um, data for the prior years Mm -hmm. um, that they had taught before, for example, for the teachers who had hosted a resident for their kind of pre-residency years, we did have data. What we would have liked to do is get data going back before the residency program even partnered with the school. Mm -hmm. And we weren't able to do that. So for example, if the residency program started working in the school in 2017, we would have loved to have like 2014 to 2016 data to get a nice trend for what it looked like before the residency program was even there we couldn't get that data. So what we do is just kind of rely on whatever data we had from, you know, for example, you know, if a teacher partnered with a program in 2017, but the residency program was there the year before, we could use their their baseline data from the year before to get a baseline. So yeah, I mean, data limitations are always the biggest challenge. And I, I think it's, we've come so far in terms of, first of all, what researchers can do, but also in terms of the types of data that can be available. And so you can't help but have this feeling when you're a researcher, like the world is your oyster. You should be able to do all of these things, but then you forget there's humans on the other end pulling this data. And maybe they don't have the most efficient systems for doing it or they're overwhelmed. They're getting, you know, way more requests than they can fulfill. And so even though the world is our oyster at this point, there is data and there are people competent enough to analyze that data. It's, um, you know, the biggest hindrance, I think, to doing this type of work is often, you know, the human capital on the district side who just can't keep up with the requests.
0: Yeah. And it's only getting exacerbated, at least right now around COVID and the fact that, a lot of uh, like just schooling is interrupted. The, the standardized tests are haven't been administered like in that academic year, 1920. You know, that's like a whole other separate topic that like, you know, people are looking into how to keep research efforts going, particularly in the age of COVID. But even without COVID, the systems were pretty stretched as it was. So, yeah, it's this is research in the real world. So I think before we kind of wrap up, I mentioned NCTR earlier and their website, but I just wanted to plug that they do have like a research brief that's going to be coming out. If it comes out before this episode airs, we will link to it, that it will be related to this research, like some summarizing this research. So they're going to put that out to their community and, and share it so that they can kind of. So other residency programs can use these findings in, you know, when they talk to districts, dispelling myths around hosting a resident and, you know, as we've said, like adding to the value proposition of having residency programs. So that'll be a nice kind of more polished brief on exactly what this episode was on today. And then that way you'll kind of get to see it in a a very consumable form because it's going to be pretty high level too. So we'll make sure that that gets linked at some point. It just it might be after this episode actually airs, but we'll, we'll link to it on our site. If you want to dig into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So this was fun. Yeah. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't, I didn't even put fun in finger quotes. No. I, I meant this Jen.
0: This I know. Fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. If anyone wants any more information, as we said at the top, uh, please reach out, send us an email, let us know. And we're happy to share it. We're going to Put all this stuff up on the web page anyway mm-hmm. but you know if you have other questions or more detailed questions please reach out this was yeah. good work as i said earlier mm-hmm. sarah really wanted this to be yeah. like a launch pad for yeah. additional work and so that's kind of the spirit of the project we don't see this as like mm-hmm. we've answered this question and now we're done and everyone can move on we see it as like we kind of crack the door open and we want everyone else to kind of follow after and and, and do some great work so please Ask questions.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's the reason that we're devoting in, uh, I guess, two episodes to this um, is so that we can get this out to a wider audience and really invite questions back because otherwise we would never, we would feel super uncomfortable talking about our own projects. But this is actually like, again, to Overdeck's credit, this is like what they want and they want to be able to put this research out there and have others build off of it. So it's really about contributing to a larger conversation in the field of education. So that's how we're looking at this. Otherwise, I think that's why Rebecca's like, this was fun and I'm not even joking. Like we were like, oh man, like we'd much rather talk to other people than talk about this ourselves. But this is in the spirit of what Overdeck wanted and and the research, so. That's why we're here. And that's why we will be back to talk about the auxiliary staffing programs. You could probably see now why we separated this into two episodes, because there's like a lot to think about just for the residency programs. So we're going to do this all over again, folks. If we haven't hopefully lost you, we're going to do round two and we will talk auxiliary staffing programs next up.
1: Yeah. Can't wait to see you.
0: All right. We'll see you for part two on the other side. Thanks for joining.